be talking about the question of, uh, from, the, from the basic standpoint, of who has the primary responsibility for the education and the upbringing of children? Who has primary responsibility for the upbringing, direction, and education of children? Some have argued that while parents should have some say in their children's education, parental authority needs frequently to be overridden for the interest of the child and for the interest of society. For example, Elizabeth Bartolet, the Morris Wasserstein Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, argues that homeschooling is dangerous for children and recommends that states have a presumptive ban on that practice. According to Bartolet, homeschooling violates children's right to a, quote, meaningful education, unquote. And so she believes that the government should step in to override and correct widespread parental shortcomings. According to Bartolet, speaking with obvious disapproval, quote, we have an essentially unregulated regime in the area of homeschooling, unquote. Okay. Yeah, let me get that. Okay, good. Okay, yeah, let me get, okay, yeah, there we go. Amy Goodman, pres is that better? Can we, you hear me over uh, I guess if, can you hear me? It's sort of a, it's self, uh, it's a futile, uh, uh, if you can't hear me, you couldn't, okay, you couldn't hear me. Anyway, okay, so we, we analyze that. Amy Goodman, president of the University of Pennsylvania, argues that the authority of the education of the child does not belong chiefly to parents, but is shared by parents and the state on an equal plane, and that parental judgment should frequently be overridden for the sake of ensuring and protecting a democratic, pluralistic, and tolerant society. I will argue that the primary and direct responsibility for the nurturing, upbringing, and education of children belongs to the parents, and that the normal role of the state is subsidiary rather than overriding or substitutional. The state may override the immediate authority of the parents only in cases of severe neglect, abuse, or if necessary to protect public health and safety. And the basis of parental authority is the biological relationship itself of the parents to their children, or in the case of adoptive parents, the lawful assumption of that parental role. My overall argument for this position will be as follows. First, the relationship between the parents and the children is a pre-political relationship, and the family is a pre-political community. The family is not a construct of the state. Second, the, the nature of the family is such that the primary and immediate responsibility and authority for the love, care, and direction of children belongs to the parents. Third, the political community, the, co the political communities, that is the state's rightful authority is limited by the nature of its common good, that is the public good. Fourth, the public good does not include taking over functions that belong to smaller communities, especially natural communities, such as marriage and the family. That's the overall argument. The state's, the conclusion is that the state acts beyond its rightful authority if it usurps the natural authority of parents, as opposed to acting with delegated authority and in an assisting or a subsidiary function than direction and education of the child. That's the outline of the argument. The first point, to, to, now I want to go through those points and to add some support and some explanation for each of those points. The first point is that the natural and biological relationship of a parent to his or her child grounds a special responsibility to love and care for that child. The tendency among many philosophers and our culture 
as a whole is to deny this point because they tend to deny the inherent significance of any biological aspects of the human person. Most of us, even those who believe that the state has primary or equal responsibility for the well-being of children, still say or still admit that a parent usually has, in some sense, greater responsibility to his or her children than to other people. But what is the source of this greater responsibility? To see who has primary responsibility for the care and the education of children, we must see what the source of parental responsibility is to begin with and how parental responsibility compares to the responsibility of the state. It seems clear that in general, a personal relationship to someone gives rise to special responsibilities, different types of responsibilities corresponding to different types of personal relationship. For example, even a generic friendship grounds a certain responsibility to one's friend. A teacher-student relationship generates responsibilities to a, stu a student, a doctor-patient relationship to uh, a patient, and so on. Some philosophers argue that relationships give rise to special responsibilities only if those relationships have been voluntarily assumed, so that, in effect, special responsibilities have been at least implicitly consented to. In a famous article on abortion, Judith Jarvis Thompson argued that a mother does not acquire a special responsibility toward her child unless and until she chooses to bring that child home from the hospital. And doing that, and not, not until doing that, says Thompson, the mother has voluntarily assumed special responsibilities to that child. However, in response to that, it seems clear that not all special responsibilities could arise from someone's having voluntarily assumed them, or on the basis of, of voluntarily uh, entering a relationship that brings with it special responsibilities. Children, for example, have special responsibilities to their parents, even though they did not voluntarily assume such responsibilities or voluntarily enter into that relationship. Or again, suppose I am watching television at home one night and the doorbell rings. I answer it and find a baby on my doorstep and, one, and no one in sight who, have, who may have left the baby. In that case, I find myself with a special responsibility. I might, have a responsibility to I, I might not have a responsibility to raise the child all the way to adulthood, but it seems clear that I now do have a special, special responsibility of some type to this child. And that responsibility is based simply on my being in the right place and at the right time. That is, on acquiring, not through voluntary assumption, but through circumstances, a specific connection to that child though I did not voluntarily assume that connection. So in some sense, a connection or a union with another can give rise to a special responsibility to that other. That's the basis, I think, as well as voluntarily assuming such responsibilities. The general reason behind this point, I believe, can be at least partly understood as follows. Human persons are not isolated individuals whose fulfillment is merely individualistic. On the contrary, although I am a distinct individual with distinct interests and, and rights, at the same time, I am by nature a member of various communities. That is, being connected or united with others in various ways, being a member of various communities, is part of who I am. Thus, my own well-being partly consists of the well-being of other persons with whom I am united. 
And so my general moral responsibilities become specified partly by voluntarily entering into communion with other people, but also by having or acquiring various types of real connections or unions with other people in ways that are anterior to my voluntarily assuming or consenting to such connections. Now, some of these connections or unities are biological in nature. Much of our culture denies the importance of the bodily part of the human persons. Indeed, many in our culture view the body as a mere extrinsic tool, an instrument, or even as a kind of raw stuff that lacks any inherent meaning, which therefore we can impose any meaning we choose upon. But the human body is an integral part of the human person, for the human person is a body-soul composite, the soul related to its body, as its, to the body as its form or principle of unity. Therefore, bodily connection or unity with an, or union with another is personal. The person, what I refer to as I, or what you refer to as you or he, is not a soul that possesses or inhabits the body or is associated in some way with the body. Rather, the person, the I or he or she, is the body and the soul together, those being parts of the one body-soul composite human person. A brief argument for this point is as follows. Grabbing and moving a pencil is a bodily action, since it is done with fingers, hands, and arms, just as walking is a bodily act, because it is done with legs and feet. Hence, the agent that performs the act of moving a pencil across a piece of paper is a bodily being. Now, the everyone, in, including those who deny that a person is a bodily being, refers to the entity that performs the act of understanding or self-consciousness as I or the ego. But it is clear that it must be the same agent, the same I, the same ego, that performs the act of writing, which we've shown is a, or which we've indicated is a bodily action on the one hand, and that performs the act of understanding it is self-conscious on the other hand. Since the agent that writes with a pencil is a bodily being, it follows that I, the one who understands and is self-conscious, am a bodily being. Because the body is an integral part of the person, bodily connections do have inherent significance. And we become aware of this point, at least implicitly, in many contexts. After the mother has been given birth and she is getting ready to go home from the hospital, the nurses don't simply give her whatever baby happens to be nearest the door. Rather, they take extreme care to ensure that the mother goes home with her own biological baby. Bodily connections matter. Bodily unions matter. Again, the fact that people are generally selective about who they will have sex with requiring, for example, that they at least know and like who they have sex with, is best explained by our awareness that bodily sexual activity carries with it, or demands at least, uh, it, it demands a personal connection at least of some type to go with a close bodily union or connection realized in sexual activity. Sexual intercourse involves, and this point is important also for the relationship with the uh, of the parents to the children. Sexual intercourse involves a thoroughgoing bodily union. The man and the woman each has only part of a reproductive system. Each of us has a complete nervous system, a complete uh, a circulatory system, a complete 
a digestive system, but none of us has a complete reproductive system. The man and the woman each has only part of a reproductive system. In sexual intercourse, they complete each other, becoming a whole reproductive system and the single subject of a single biological function. The two become truly organically united, truly one body or one flesh. This fact, and our awareness of it, at least on some level, explains why sexual activity has an inherently personal significance. Again, biology does matter. So a close union with another, in some cases a bodily union, grounds a special responsibility to that person. And now it is clear that there is a very close bodily union of the parents to their children. Radical feminists are wrong to say that the embryo or fetus, the human embryo or fetus, is merely a part of the woman's body. For the child, from conception on, is a distinct, actively growing individual human being. Nevertheless, their claim is not totally groundless. The relationship is one of physical continuity or prolongation. There is a unique biological unity or continuity of, ch of children to their parents, and this is true of both the the, the mother and the father. The parents become bodily one in their sexual act. It truly is a one flesh union, a biological union. But this biological union gives rise to and is prolonged in the child. Thus the mother and the father and their unity are in a certain sense prolonged and continued in their offspring. The child comes to be from the bodily parts, the sex cells, the gametes that come from the mother and the father. So the body of the new child was just moments before parts of the mother and of the father. The child coming to be from the union of the sex cells from the father, child uh, comes to be again from the union of the sex cells from the father and the mother. The child also receives from the union of those sex cells a genetic code that provides the fundamental individual blueprint for the active self-development of the child all the way to her mature stage. So although the baby is not literally a part of the mother or of the father at any stage from conception on, at least not a mere part, the, body, the baby does have a strong and very thoroughgoing biological union with both the mother and the father. Viewing this relationship from the standpoint of the new child, we can see that the, that the baby's specific and individual identity, who she is as a body-soul person, is bound up with her connection to her mother and her father. Children, of course, come into the world in a very needy condition. Uh, got one, one back there, that's great. <laughs> they need nurturing, care, love, and direction. Moreover, given that, given that who they are, their unique personal identity, is in part constituted by their connection to their own biological parents, Children have a need for the love and care of their parents, not just some parents or other, but their own parents. If the parents, one or both of them, die or abandon the child, other individuals may step in and assume at least many of the parental responsibilities and be real, not just substituted parents. Nevertheless, the child would still be deprived of something important, namely the love and care of her own biological parents. In sum, we have a special responsibility to those people with whom we have a close personal union. But we do have a very intimate and thoroughgoing union that is fully personal with our children. Therefore, that we have a special responsibility to our children. Note that what the child needs, and so what the parent has a special responsibility to, and I'm emphasizing this point again, 
uh, is not just that the child be nurtured, cared for, and educated, but that the parents themselves be the ones who provide this care, if possible. The parent's responsibility to his or her ch child are not fully transferable to someone else. For example, as a father, I ought, if possible, attend my son's track meets, or at least back when he did have track meets. Okay. Talking about the youngest one, because I have a bunch of them. But anyway, for track meets for, for a long time. But I, I have a responsibility to, to attend my son's track meets. But also, I could not fulfill this responsibility just by hiring somebody else to go see the track meet. So there are two parts to a parent's responsibilities. He or she has a duty to ensure that the child receive care and education. That's part of the special responsibility of the child, uh, responsibility to the child, but also a duty to provide these himself or herself. Of course, the parents may enlist the assistance of others in providing for care and education for their children. Because of the limitations of their knowledge and skill, the need for at least one of them to work outside the home, and their other responsibilities, the parents will inevitably need assistance from others, perhaps schools, tutors, other role models, and so on. How much of this relying on help from others is appropriate and not a derogation of duty to provide personal care themselves it will be a prudential matter. In any case, this outsourcing of some care to others is delegated responsibility and remains subsidiary to the parent's authority, direction, and approval. Generally, a parent does not fulfill his or her responsibilities to the child if he or she completely hands over those tasks to others. The child has a need for the personal responsibility, uh, uh, for the personal relationship with her own mother and her own father. But in some tragic circumstances, a parent may see that he or she is unable to fulfill the duties of a parent. And in that case, handing the child over for adoption could be the right thing to do. Still, this is not a case of completely fulfilling one's parental responsibility through another. Rather, it is a case of being unable to fulfill one's parental responsibilities completely, but of doing the best one can to fulfill those responsibilities partially to the extent one is able. It is worth noting also that adoptive parents are related to the child in the, genu in the genuine parental role, and the child's character will be formed in union with those parents. Therefore, adoptive parents are, are true, they are true parents, not just similar to parents. Still, if a child loses her parents or is given up for adoption, then although her adoptive parents may be excellent, the absence of the love and the care of the child's own biological parents is still a deprivation. The special responsibility that one has to one's biological children is to be present as a mother and a father who will provide the child with the nurturing and directing, the directing of the child to his or her mature, fulfilled, and virtuous state, the direction that she specifically needs. In other words, the responsibility one has to one's children is a, is a structured one and has definite content. It arises from the biological relationship to the child, and this responsibility is defined by the child's own good. His or her own full uh, development, physically, emotionally, intellectually, morally, and religiously, to the stage where, where she can take on the task of the principal direction or government of her life for herself. Now, if we add to these points, the conclusion that I, I'll, I will argue for in the next uh, section, the last section, 
namely that the state's legitimate authority is limited, it will follow that for the state to override parental authority as opposed to providing assistance or acting with de delegated authority, except for cases of parental abuse or serious neglect or when necessary for, the public, for public safety and order, is a profound injustice. To support and explain this last point, namely the limited role of the state, I turn now to a more detailed look at that uh, at the state and its authority. The state's authority does not reach in every way into every aspect of a human being's fulfillment. Like any other community, the state's authority, the, the, the legitimate scope of its action, extends only as far as its specific common good. And since it belongs to the nature of a community, any community, that it is simply a multitude of people agreeing to cooperate for the sake of a common purpose, the state's specific common good also defines the need for, defines the, uh, defines the need for this community and also the limits of that common, uh, of, uh, of its authority. Now the presupposition here is that we ought to pursue the genuine goods of, of ourselves and other people. There are various, there are intrinsic goods such as knowledge, life, health, friendship, and so on, which are worth pursuing for their own sake, for ourselves and for others, and we ought to pursue those. That's sort of the first principles of the natural law. You call those basic goods, basic goods such as life, knowledge, aesthetic experience, friendship, marriage is a basic good, and so on. Okay? Now, some basic goods or some intrinsic goods can be pursued, pursued and, and I, what I want to do here is to indicate uh, why we need the state and therefore why the state's authority, if we, if we see the need for the state and the common good of the state, then we see also the limitations of the state, then we can compare that to the common good or the, the, the purpose of the, of the family. Some basic goods can be pursued only in cooperation with others, and so these goods naturally require the formation of smaller pre-political communities. These are the goods such as friendship and marriage. In addition, other basic goods such as health, knowledge, and play, although they can be pursued by us as individuals, frequently are more effectively pursued in communion with others. And so pursuit of those goods, uh, I mentioned health, knowledge, and play, uh, leads uh, or pursuit of both the goods that can only be pursued uh, with others, such as friendship and marriage, and, the, and also the goods that we can more effectively pursue, uh, often pursue with others, such as uh, health, knowledge, and play, uh, lead, lead us to form other pre-political communities, such as hospitals, schools, study groups, athletic communities, and of course, friendships and marriages. So we ought to form various communities at the pre-political level already before we're talking about the state because some basic goods are, because again, some basic goods are such that we can only pursue them in communities and other basic goods are such that we can pursue them more effectively by, performing, by forming such pre-political communities. But belong, uh, beyond these smaller communities, there is need for a wider community, a state or a political community. A political community, a state, is an overarching community within a region, a community that coordinates the actions of all the individuals of other communities within that region. An overarching community in the sense that there is no higher or more extensive temporal authority in that region. 
And this is what Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas referred to as a complete community. They didn't mean it has everything, but it has, uh, it, it's, uh, you're at the end of the line and talking about wide-reaching communities, at least in the temporal order. Now, the following activities cannot be effectively or sufficiently performed at the pre-political uh, pre level. I'm going to sum up some of these in any case. And so the common good of the state will include them. First, protecting the individuals and families within a region against external attacks. So defense, okay. Second, protection from injustices committed by other members within the region and compensation or vindication for such injustices. Third, the coordination of the actions of the residents in the region with respect to common interests, such as the exchange of goods, transportation, travel, resolution of disputes, and so on. Fourth, assistance for those with basic needs due to their disability or disadvantage who will not sufficiently be cared for by individuals or, uh, at, or by pre-political communities. So there's a need for a kind of a social uh, safety net for those who don't get uh, care at a lower level that they need, that they can't get provide for themselves. Thus, the political, those are, sorry, at least those are four areas that are basic, I think. The, the political community, the state then, is needed in, 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 because there are various important goods that we cannot effectively pursue without it. The state's common good is not, and then if this is right, then the state's common good, its specific purpose, is not an additional fundamental good, not an additional basic good, that is not already pursued in some way at the pre-political pre level. Rather, it is the added effectiveness and harmony in our various pursuits made possible by coordination and action at this higher or more extensive and, some, and, and more impersonal level of common action. That sort of impersonality is kind of needed for the justice uh, area there. Interests that can be just as effectively or most often more effectively pursued by pre-political groups or individuals should be pursued by them and not by, directly by the state. Also, there are interests that the state is not competent directly to pursue and that it is inappropriate for various reasons for the state to do so. Such as, for example, the business of matchmaking for marriages. You know, I've, Humans don't do a great job in selecting spouses. Maybe the state should just intervene and do it, take it over for them. It's just not appropriate. Okay. Uh, religion, more, more significantly. So the direct participation in these goods is not part of the state's common good, and so does not belong to its proper authority. In other words, those areas where it's beyond what uh, it, it's needed for they're, they're, are, are beyond its legitimate authority. In sum, the proper scope of the state's action, the public good, includes only what can be more effectively and appropriately pursued by the state. Other interests and goods or aspects of goods belong to the private good. Private still, might still be uh, communal in the, uh, belonging to having to do with and, and requiring needing pre-political communities. The state's legitimate authority is limited to the public good. Thus, the state's common good does not include the provision, uh, the provision uh, for its members of all benefits and direction of every aspect of their lives. Such is the totalitarian and socialist view of government. And one seem, seeming to gain ground in, uh, in our present president also. 
Uh, that could be debated, I suppose. But he seems to have a very, very expansive view of, of, uh, of the legitimate uh, scope of uh, public public of the uh, of the of the community political community. Uh, this is not the natural it, it, uh, it, the idea that that it belongs to the state to take care of every aspect of your life uh, is not the natural law view that I am setting out here. Rather, the chief role of the government is subsidiarity, not chiefly to provide people with goods, though in some cases as a political community we must do that, but to set the conditions for people and pre-political communities that will facilitate their realization of the various intrinsic goods. Vatican Council II expresses this point in its document, Gaudium et Spes, as follows, quote, the common good, and they're, they're, teaching, they're speaking of the common good of the political community at this point, the common good embraces the sum total of all those conditions of social life which enable individuals, families, and organizations to achieve fulfillment more completely and more expeditiously, unquote. As indicated earlier, the family is a natural and pre-political community, and it has an objective structure consequent to the nature of its own specific common good. So the state has a duty to respect the structure of that community, of the, uh, namely of the family. The state has the duty, except where abuse or public order or safety absolutely require it, not to intrude into the interior direction of the family, and a duty to respect the inherent authority of the parents in that community. The state surely has a role in setting conditions that, that can facilitate families pursuing family life, but its authority with respect to children and the family is limited to, to setting those conditions. The state's common good does not include taking over the function of the family, making the internal function of the family a direct part of its purpose. This point is an application of what has been called the principle of subsidiarity. It has been a central point in the social teachings of the Catholic Church, first articulated clearly by Pope Leo XIII, and then repeated by popes in several important encyclicals, and then by the Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council, and by the Catechism of the Catholic Church. 1931, in the encyclical Quadragesimo Anno, Pope Pius XI expressed it as follows, quote, just, it is, just as it is gravely wrong to take from individuals what they can accomplish by their own initiative and industry and give it to the community, so also it is an injustice and at the same time a grave evil and disturbance of right order to assign to a greater and higher association what lesser and subordinate organizations can do. For every social activity ought of its very nature to furnish help to the members of the body social and never destroy and absorb them." Unquote. Now in fact, the state act, acts beyond its authority whenever it substitutes its own judgment for that of the leaders in any pre-political community with respect to that community's proper end. Even such a community as a chess club or bakery for example, a bakery's common good is to provide baked goods at a fair price with friendly service and a profit for the bakery and wages for its employees. The state can, of course, rightly regulate the activities of the bakery in many ways, but only with respect, but properly only with respect to how the bakery impacts the public good. The state can properly make laws and regulations to ensure honesty, public accommodation for minors, and that the bakery not unduly pollute the atmosphere, for examples. 
But the state would act ultra vires beyond its legitimate authority if it substituted its judgment for that of the baker's, bakery's manager, an area that directly concerns the specific common good of the bakery. For example, by setting the bakery's prices, requiring certain quota for rye bread or sourdough bread, and so on. These would not be merely unwise acts, but injustices, for the state would be depriving the baker and his or her employees of self-direction in their work, detracting from an important human good, self-fulfillment in work. Similarly, the state may rightly regulate the family's activity, but only with, when those activities involve a clear case of abuse or if they impact the broader common good. For example, the parents were training their children to be terrorists. The relationship between the state and the family can also be compared to the state's relationship to religion. Religion is, of course, an important intrinsic good, integral to the flourishing of human individuals and families, and indeed, for most religious people, the most central aspect of their lives. The state need not and should not ignore or be indifferent to religion. It is proper for the state to try to set conditions that facilitate the religious practice of individuals, families, and churches, the individuals and communities who directly pursue this good. But the state should not intervene in the choice itself to be religious, nor should it promote this or that specific religion, nor take over the governance of religious activities to their end, which transcends the common good of the state. This is true partly for the same reason that the, that the state should not intrude into the workings of a bakery, but it is more clearly true and more urgent because the state is not competent in the area of religion and as making the religious decisions for individuals and families is inappropriate. Religion is the harmony or friendship with God, a relationship that is by its very nature voluntary, so it is not appropriately directed, directly pursued by the state, since membership in the state is not fully voluntary, which political community one can be a member of is usually largely determined by one's location. So the state, I think, has a proper role with respect to religion, but only with respect to setting conditions that facilitate its, its exercise, not regulating re the, the, in, the internal uh, activities of, of religion. By analogy, the raising and governance of a child is a task for which the parents are especially suited and the, st and the state especially unsuited. The creation of a home, a place of love, care, warmth, discipline, focused on cultivating the interior as well as the external development of the person, is a voluntary and deeply personal task or mission, not performed well by the larger and less personal political community. The duty or service to the child by the parents is irreplaceable. The state simply cannot fulfill what the parent can and, is, and what the parent is obligated to do. So if the state goes beyond its legitimate authority, it damages intrinsic basic goods in two different ways. First, it harms the community by substituting unwise or inappropriate direction for the more reliable direction of those closer to and more personally related to the members of that pre-political pre community. The state could damage health, for example, by substituting its own more distant judgment for the more up-close judgments of a hospital or a gym, or by imposing misleading or false information about health. Second, 
by intruding and substituting its own authority for the proper authority of, the, of a specific political, pre-political community, the state undermines the rightful authority for that community, and to that extent degrades the community. Important with respect to any community, but crucial in regard to the family, where the community itself is a, is a distinct type of intrinsic good, and where the personal authority of the parents is vital for the functioning of the family. So as the Va Second Vatican Council taught, quote, and Gaudium et Spes uh, number, uh, no, it's Gravissimum uh, 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 Educationis, Declaration on Christian Education, number three. Since parents have children, uh, their uh, since parents have given children their life, they are bound by the most serious obligation to educate their offspring, and therefore must be recognized as the primary and principal educators. This role in education is so important that only with difficulty can it be supplied where it is lacking. Parents are the ones who must create a family atmosphere animated by love and respect for God and man, in which the well-rounded personal and social education of children is fostered." Unquote. In sum, the legitimate authority of the state is limited. The proper role of the state is to set the conditions that facilitate individuals, families, and other pre-political communities realizing their own genuine fulfillment. The family is a natural and pre-political community and is itself a distinct form of intrinsic good. It has an objective structure consequent to the nature of its common good, good of the child, which is the development and education of children in their true and mature development. So the state has a duty to respect the structure of the family. The responsibility and authority of parents in relation to their children is grounded in the nature of the personal relationship self, it itself of the parents to their children. So the state has the duty, except for abuse or where public order and safety absolutely require it, not to intrude into the interior direction of the family and to respect the inherent authority of the parents of this community.